0: Praise God. Uh, we're, we're excited to celebrate with Jim and Brenna in the 11 o'clock service. And uh, just to continue that theme of celebrating, I just want to share with you, church family, that last Sunday, uh, we had over 1,100 people on campus for Easter uh, Sunday. Uh, just to put that in perspective, that's more than we had two years ago on Easter Sunday, more than 2019 in, on Easter Sunday. It's definitely more than 2020. Uh, but uh, man, we're just excited and it was a great Sunday. We're so thankful for uh, just all those who were a part of uh, serving, whether it's our first impressions, uh, serving in our children's ministry, our worship team and choir. And indeed, uh, you helped it to be a great Sunday of welcoming people uh, on our campus and i just want to to stress <laughs> that if we want to continue uh, in that direction and for that number to be the norm uh, on campus one day. We indeed need more people who are serving in our essential ministries on Sunday morning. And so uh, if you are able, we would love for you to serve on our First Impressions team or in our worship and tech team or uh, in children's and student ministries. And, and and that's just going to have to happen if we want to have the kind of growth uh, that we believe God is leading us to have. And so as I say that, I want to ask something, Uh, specifically I want to ask you to pray for this, but we have got to move towards having more groups, more life groups that meet on Wednesdays, so that those individuals can be involved in serving on Sundays. Sunday is the front door. Uh, for many who would visit our church, perhaps uh, even those who are visiting this morning or visited last week. And we need more people uh, involved in serving on Sunday mornings if we really want to take it seriously to do whatever it takes to lead people to believe in Jesus, belong to God's family, and become who He's created them to be. So maybe that's something that you might be able to do is uh, be a part of a Wednesday night group or even move your group to Wednesday night. Um, and, and Or maybe it's just something you're not able to do right now, but I would ask you to pray for For that, because we need that right now, more people to make that shift. If you are visiting with us today uh, because you came on Easter and you're back uh, with us, or maybe you're visiting with us for the first time because you're kind of a rebel and you don't visit on Easter. You visit the next week. uh, We're so glad to have you here, and we would love to know who you are. You can text the word connect to the number that's on the screen, and one of our staff members will follow up with you this week uh, and would be happy to answer any questions that you might have. You're also welcome to drop by uh, the front of the stage at the end of service and say hello to one of our Leaders, and I want to say that you joined us at a great time because we are beginning a journey today through the gospel of Mark. The word gospel means good news, it is a message of good news. And there are four books in the Bible that are considered the Gospels. These books are written as records of who Jesus was and what Jesus did and what he taught. So Mark is the second book of the New Testament, and uh, Mark is where we will be focusing our time for about a year or so with maybe a break here and there. We'll look to the other Gospels as we go through Mark as well. Mark is actually considered to be the least popular gospel. Uh, But most scholars believe that his gospel was the first one that was written. In fact, several scholars have said that Matthew and Luke actually used Mark as the basis for the structure of what they wrote. I I don't think Mark is losing sleep in heaven over the fact that his gospel is the least popular gospel. Now, the book is actually anonymous if you just read the text, and so we have to go to the earliest church traditions to understand its authorship. And actually, a man named Papias, who was a disciple of the apostles, defended uh, the Mark as the author of this gospel. Uh, he defended it being John Mark, who was associated with Peter, believing that Peter instructed Mark to write m- much of this down or informed Mark in his writing. It was written shortly after Peter's death in somewhere between 64 to 66 AD. It was written to the Jewish Christians, primarily who were in Rome, and and Mark wrote this for a few reasons. One is to develop a Christology. That means an understanding of who Jesus is and and what he did and what he taught. Also, he wrote this for the purpose of discipleship. What did that generation of Jewish Christians in Rome and the generations to come need to understand about their lives if they wanted to follow Jesus? And he also wrote it, as we will see when we get towards the end of Mark, to help inform uh, Christians of a view they should have of The future. So as we begin in the gospel of Mark, let's pray together. Lord, I pray as we read these words that I would decrease and that you would increase. And Lord, I pray that you would speak to us, God, that your word would resonate in our hearts as it has in the hearts of people for generations and generations. And as Mark intended to help us understand who Jesus is, what he did, what he taught, and how we should therefore live. I pray that we would understand who Jesus is by the Spirit's help and that we would respond the way that Jesus would have us to respond. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, Mark begins in this way. Chapter one, verse one. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So Mark quotes Isaiah chapter 40, which we will talk about later in the beginning. In Luke, Luke says, you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. And now this prophecy from Luke and from Isaiah is coming true. The word of the Lord comes to John, who we call John the Baptist. John himself would say, as recorded in John chapter 1, verse 23, I am the voice crying out in the wilderness. Luke says that the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. In the wilderness of Judea, Matthew says in his gospel. The wilderness was a rocky desert terrain where few people lived, certainly not city people from Jerusalem. And it was a more jungle-like, you know, look when you got closer to the river. So we have some images here, so you just understand this is what the wilderness would look like in this region. And there were people who lived out in the wilderness in the caves. One famous community is called the Qumran community. You can go to the next slide. And many people believe that John the Baptist was possibly a part of the Qumran community, or a community that was similar to it. And when they got down to the river, again it would be more fertile, even though it was in a desert-like region. And this is a picture of the Jordan River, which is probably similar to the setting in what we're reading. What we're reading takes place in Luke chapter three. It tells us when this is taking place in the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. It tells us that Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea. Herod was the tetrarch of Galilee. His brother Philip was a tetrarch of the region of Arturia and Trachonitis. And Lysanias was a tetrarch of Abilene. And the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas excuse me, was going on at this time. And during this time, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, In the wilderness, John was a prophet, and prophets tend to walk out of the woods. They don't belong to Caesar. They don't belong to the temple. They belong to the Lord, and they can freely call people to repentance without concern for what Caesar or the temple has to say. And John, the text tells us, was baptizing and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Let's take a closer look at what John was doing. He was baptizing. He was baptizing people. They were coming out to the Jordan River. He was dunking them in the river. They were coming out. And the Jews would practice baptism in this day in a few different ways. For them, these practices of baptism were ritual purification to show the cleansing of sins and the like. But for the Gentiles or non-Jewish converts to Judaism, they would have a proselyte baptism to identify themselves now with God's people and to be cleansed from the sin of being a Gentile. So for John to perform a baptism or practice a baptism of repentance was not traditional. And the fact that a non-Levite, non-priest is performing this on Jews Is not of the temple. He's baptizing and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. In Luke's gospel, it tells us a little bit more about the teaching of John that corresponded with this baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It says in Luke, in verse chapter three, verse twelve, that tax collectors also came to be baptized. And said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than what you are authorized to do. At this time, tax collectors had been uh, synonymous with taking more than they should from their own people. And he said, stop living that way if you're coming to be baptized for the repentance of sins. Verse 14 says, soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. He's saying now you're living, not for yourself, but in a different way. In Matthew's gospel, it it records John talking to the religious crowd. Matthew chapter 3, verse 7. It says, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, He said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He says, if you really want to be baptized for the repentance of sins, for the forgiveness of sins, then you need to live for the forgiveness of sins. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John says, Don't think that you don't need repentance and that you don't need to bear fruit in keeping with repentance just because you are part of the family of Abraham. You need to repent. Now, I realize that in this room this morning, watching online this morning, that there are people with different backgrounds when it comes to the issue of baptism. I realize that there are people listening to me, watching me this morning, who your baptism is not what we're talking about here. So let me help you understand who I am. Most of you know who I am, but I I did not grow up going to church. When I was in high school, through the invitation of a friend to play basketball, I started going to a youth outreach. And one night, God, it hit me that I'm a sinner and I need forgiveness. February 27th, 1997. For the first time in my life, I asked God to forgive me of my sins, believing Jesus Christ had died for my sins and wanting to live for him. We didn't go to church as a family. And that was a, you know, it was a Pentecostal church. My parents didn't want to go there, anything like that. Then when I was a junior in high school, about to be a senior in high school, my stepdad was watching a televangelist one day and he Got saved. He is the one documented person who's ever actually been saved from a televangelist. And so we started going to church, and the, the blowing and gro- growing church in that community at that time, it was the late 90s, was a Baptist church. Pretty much any Baptist church at that time who started singing songs other than hymns just grew by a lot. And so that, there was that church, and so we went to that church, and they talked to us as, as believers about our need to be baptized, and so we were baptized. And you know, I kind of struggled for the next few years. I wasn't really discipled the way I should be. I think part of that is because I seemed like a natural leader, and so they thought I was farther along than. I- I was, but anyway, eventually I said, hey, I know I'm called to be a pastor, whatever that fully means, and I went to Bible college, and and I went hungry to learn the Word, and to study the Word, and be informed uh, about how I should live, and what I should believe by the Word, and then a couple years later, by my stupidity and God's grace, I planted a church in Crestview, and when we planted this church, I said, I want it to do things the way the Bible says to do it. Now, imperfectly, of course, but that should be our aim. And so when it came to the issue of baptism, I knew there was a lot of different teaching on baptism, and I wanted what the Bible said to inform what we viewed about baptism. And so I'd even at that point said, you know, am I sure I want to be a Baptist and and, and pastor a Baptist church? And and I came to that conclusion by reading the Bible. So I, I want you to understand that I'm not teaching what I'm teaching about baptism this morning because I'm a Baptist or because this is a Baptist church. I'm teaching what I'm teaching about baptism because of the Bible. John's baptism fits what we are going to see in all of the rest of the New Testament, and it fits all that we see in the first two centuries of the Christian era, until a little after 200 AD, when Tertullian mentions infant baptism for the first time in any historical document. That is, baptism was the baptism of believers in the Bible, not of infants. And the reason for this is that baptism was the sign of belonging to the new people of God who are not constituted by birth or ethnic identity, but by repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus made baptism, as I am defining here, a part of his ministry and a part of the mission that he has commanded us to live. I want to be very clear. Baptism is not a denominational thing. It is a biblical thing. Baptism does not belong to man. Baptism belongs to God. Baptism does not belong to man. Baptism belongs to God. Man has zero right to say, this is how I think we should practice this. Because it does not belong to man or any church authority. It belongs to God. And therefore, he informs us what baptism is. And so when we look at baptism in the Bible, I want to show you four things quickly that help us understand what baptism is. The first would be this. Baptism means to be immersed. The word baptizo, the Greek word that is used when we say baptism, means immersion. If you heard that word in their day, you would think of nothing else. In fact, we'll see times in the Bible where they say baptized in suffering, baptized with this cup, talking about being immersed in suffering. So the word baptism is synonymous with the word immersion, to dip or to immerse. The second thing that I want us to see about baptism in the Bible is that baptism follows repentance, confession, and belief. Baptism, as prescribed in the Bible, follows repentance, confession, and belief. It's interesting here that in this text, they say, well, we have Abraham as our father. And many have proposed that baptism should be a covenant with the family or, you know, with the church and not about our own personal confession, repentance, and belief. However, John says God could raise up stones to be the sons of Abraham. And so you claiming this right because of your birth isn't enough. You need to repent and you need to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And that's what we see practiced in the New Testament. No other thing is practiced in the New Testament. The third thing that I hope you will see about baptism here in the Bible is that baptism represents burial and resurrection. Baptism is a picture of burial and resurrection. Paul articulates this very well in Colossians chapter 2. I'll read verse 9 through 12. He says of Jesus, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, Baptism is a picture of our burial with Christ, our sin being buried with Christ, and us being raised from the dead with Christ in the newness of life that God has given us. That is what it is a picture of. The last thing is that baptism is an outward expression of what is inward. Baptism is an outward expression of what is inward. Again, I'm just jumping into a passage here, but 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 through 22 helps us understand that Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, powers, having been subjected to him. So when we trust in Christ... He has made us dead in the flesh and alive in the Spirit. And so we do not believe that it is baptism that is actually saving you, but we believe that baptism is the fruit of our salvation. We believe that we are saved through the work of the Spirit, regeneration, helping us to be dead and now alive. And when we're baptized, we're publicly professing that to the believers and all who would see of what God has done in our hearts. So, you know, if, if someone, Jim and Brenna tell their story, and, and, and Brenna's story is that she really came to faith later and she needs to be baptized now. Jim has been walking with the Lord for a long time. And I don't think he's not saved because he hasn't been baptized by immersion until right now, but I do think he's being obedient. So I, do, I don't think someone who hasn't done this for whatever reason is not saved now there are those who would say hey you will do this if you're saved and they make a good point but then you have the thief on the cross I don't think Jesus took him down from the cross and baptized him and said now you'll be with me in paradise today just saying so 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 really it's this thing that should happen does happen but it's not a requirement now I'll just say this if, if you've grown up with some other understanding, I'm not frustrated with you. I'm frustrated that people teach something other than what the Bible says. Because it's very clear in the scripture. And, and, and it's a big deal to us as a church. And, and here's why it's a big deal to us as a church. I mean, it, if you want to be a member of our church, you do have to believe and be baptized. And, and so therefore you believe that that is what the Bible teaches. And that's why it's important because the authority of the Bible the authority is scripture. The authority for what we do is a scripture. And the scripture tells us about gospel centrality. I mean, the central aspect of the scripture is the gospel, is the good news of Jesus Christ. And we need to be, if we believe in the Bible, laser focused on the importance of the gospel. I mean, that was the message that was being proclaimed in the early church and in John the Baptist. I mean, Matthew, in his record of what's happening here, Matthew chapter three, verse one and two, he says, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then baptizing for the repentance, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This is the same message of Jesus. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's a kingdom identity. It's that our citizenship is not in being a Jew or being an American or being whatever denomination. Our citizenship is in heaven because of the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to become a Christian. We are no longer sons and daughters of anyone other than God and everything is seen through that lens. And, and this is such a radical change that Jesus was killed for it a radical clarification that Jesus was killed for it because he was preaching a citizenship of the kingdom of heaven not of Israel it's john the baptist was arrested for preaching this and beheaded for preaching this repentance means a new identity and purpose it means i am now taking on the role of son or daughter of the king of heaven. It's not political or religious or familiar. My identity is as a son and daughter of God. And this resonated with the people who John was preaching to. Mark chapter one, verse five says, and all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. They're coming and they're confessing their sins and they're being baptized, a baptism of repentance to now live as sons and daughters for God of the kingdom of heaven. And it says in verse six and seven, now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locust and wild honey. I don't know why they included that. I think it was solely so that youth boys would be very interested in what John the Baptist had to say. (laughs) And verse seven says, and he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. Now, you need to understand what John is saying. So most of us wear multiple pairs of shoes during a given week. I have an 11-year-old boy. He does not. He wears the same pair of shoes everywhere he goes. Sure, for church gatherings, he will put on some different shoes because his mom says and when he's playing basketball. But other than that, he wears the same shoes with no socks everywhere he goes, and they smell terrible they're disgusting they're worn out i don't want to touch them now in this day you wore sandals most of most people the same sandals everywhere they went dust got on your feet they didn't have sewer systems all kinds of stuff would get on your feet they were disgusting and smelly and all of these things and there was a law that said jewish slaves did not have to take the sandals off of the feet of their master because even a slave was above that. That would make them unclean. They didn't have to do it. And John the Baptist says, if Jesus were to ask me to untie his sandals, I would not even be worthy to do that. That which slaves don't even have to do I'm not even worthy to do that for Jesus. That's who John understood Jesus to be. He says in John 1.15, there is one who comes after me, who ranks before me, because he was four before me. Colossians 1, which we looked at last week, says that Jesus has always been, and him was the fullness of God when Jesus begins to proclaim the kingdom of God and people begin to follow him and more and more people are going to him instead of John the Baptist, his disciples say, what do you think about this, John? And here's what John says. John chapter three, verse 29 and 30. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease John says this is why I live and this is my joy that people would see who they were made for that the bride would see her groom I am not a groomsman trying to get the bride to look at me but I am a groomsman rejoicing that the bride is looking at her groom this is our lives Not that the attention would be on us. He must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase, but I must decrease is the purpose of the Christian's life. That's what we proclaim in our baptism. And that's what we proclaim with our life. If you've ever read... Rick Warren's The Purpose Driven Life, the very first line of that book that tells us what our purpose is, says, it's not about you. Our purpose is not found in self-actualization or self-affirmation, but in Christ. And when we find our purpose in Christ, we find abundant life. John is preparing the way. Isaiah 40 verse 3 says, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Luke records a quotation in verse 4 and 5 of that chapter, which says, every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has been has spoken. The ground is being made level. There is no longer a high place where the temple is that you must get to, but the ground is being made level. Everyone has access to God. The glory of the Lord is being revealed. All flesh see it together. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. And here's what John the Baptist says in verse 8 I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Again, the humility of John and understanding his role here. The prophet Joel had said that it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And Ezekiel, he said, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. These long-awaited promises are being fulfilled. To be baptized means to be immersed. And John is saying Jesus is going to baptize you with the spirit. And in the New Testament, we see after the ascension of Jesus in Jerusalem that his disciples are baptized with the Spirit. We see this happen at the first time people come to faith in Christ. We see this happen to groups on two separate instances, and that's when a new group of people, a new demographic, understood the gospel and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So I don't take baptism, baptism with the Spirit. And John, as a technical term for one experience of the Christian life, but as a general term for all the Holy Spirit does for his church because of Christ. In other words, if you are not born again, then one way to describe your need is that you need to be baptized with the Spirit. And Jesus is the one who does this. Jesus is how this is possible. Look what happens in verses 9 through 11. In those days of Mark, John did not actually want to baptize Jesus because he wasn't worthy to do so. But Jesus had him do it so that all righteousness would be fulfilled, Matthew says. And then the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus. And now we have the same spirit of God. The work of Jesus was not only that the son was given for God's people, but that the spirit was given for God's people. The work of Jesus was not only that the Son was given for God's people, but that the Spirit was given for God's people. Every spiritual need that we have before and after conversion is supplied by Christ, immersing us in greater and lesser degrees in the Holy Spirit. This is why we are told as Christians to walk in the Spirit, because it is given to us by Christ When Christ is baptized, God says, you are my beloved son. Now, we don't know if only Jesus saw this descending or others saw it, if he just told people about it, but what we do know is he heard in those moments, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. He's being told his position in heaven. I love that this is before Jesus actually does his ministry. He's God's before he does anything. In the same way, when we come to faith in Christ, we are a son and daughter of God before we do anything because the work of salvation is not about what we do for God and rules we keep for God and our deeds. It's about the work that happens. That's why we're dead in our trespasses, buried with him in baptism and raised to walk in a new life. And so we now identify through our baptism with Christ, with God. And so Jesus baptizes us with the Spirit as we repent and we trust in Him, and He gives us everything we need for our life. Now, I would be misrepresenting the text and misrepresenting God if I did not also share with you what Matthew says in chapter 3, verse 11 and 12. He records John saying, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And Luke mentions this as well. So I said, our position... Is the sons and daughters of God. It is our right that God has given us through Christ. But if we do not identify with him, then we are not baptized with the Spirit and given all that we need in life. We are baptized with fire and clearly based on verse 12, The judgment of God is on us. So if you've never come to a place where you realize you need repentance, then the judgment of God is on you. We don't just gain access to God by our deeds. Or by what church we grew up in, or the faith of our parents, or the faith of our grandparents. John was proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, a righteousness that comes not from us, but from God. And Jesus was the fulfillment of this righteousness that comes from God in his life and his death and his resurrection and his ascension. And when we come to faith, and this is why we are baptized, we are saying, I have no hope in myself, and my only hope is in him. So our invitation to you, the next step that you should make Should be one of the following three things. Perhaps you need to repent and be baptized. Irregardless of your religious background, your church background, your family background, you need to change your identity as a son and daughter of God and be baptized as a symbol of that commitment that you're making to Christ by his grace. I realize that perhaps you're not ready for that. Perhaps you have more questions. You're welcome to talk to me about those questions, but most of you won't. So here's what I would invite you to do then. Hang with us in Mark to learn about Jesus. We're going to go through the gospel of Mark. We'll talk more about some of this stuff, but more so you'll understand who Jesus is, what a life lived for him looks like, why we should live for him, why we need his grace. So I invite you to just keep coming and listening as we learn about Jesus. And the last thing I would say to believers who've professed this, who believe this, is live your life to this end. He must increase. But I must decrease. He must increase, but I must decrease. That's why the first thing we do in the morning is turn to the Word. He must increase, but I must decrease. That's why we pray, Your will, Lord, not mine, be done. You must increase, but I must decrease. That's why we're part of a church community. God, teach me through these believers. You must increase, but I must decrease. Keep me accountable because you must increase, but I must decrease. This is why we serve. He must increase, but... I must decrease. This is why we give. He must increase, but I must decrease. And this is why we're compelled to carry the gospel to this community and the nations because he must increase, but I must decrease. Our goal as a church cannot be the church on Bayshore would look good, but that people would see how good our God is. In whatever way this applies to your life today, may your prayer, may your desire be To the one whose sandal you're not worthy to untie, who has called you son and daughter, he must increase, but I must decrease. Father, may you increase in this room this morning. And as you increase in this room this morning, may you increase in our hearts and our lives May we decrease, may we see the faithfulness of God that when we deny ourself, you give us abundant life. God, you know better for us, what is better for us than we know for ourselves. And so Lord, I pray in this moment, God, that we would just bow before you humbly and live before you humbly. And that because of A few who said, he must increase, but I must decrease, that you would increase in this community and beyond. I pray this in Jesus' glorious name. Amen.